Hey, welcome back. This is Attorney Charles Shire over at the law firm of Shire & Ritchie. We do criminal defense there, state, federal work. Uh, you can give us a call at 309-839-2024 or check us out at the web at www.srtriallawyers.com. Now, on today's episode, we're going to uh, talk about the types of evidence that would be used at your trial. Uh, oftentimes, we will get a question, and you as a, uh, a person interested in this podcast, either you are uh, currently facing charges or you have a loved one who is facing charges, you might have this burning question. How will the state prove their case against you? So evidence comes in a variety of different forms. And what I think is always important is to just try to break things down for people. And, and, and that's what we're going to do in this podcast. We're going to talk about the types of evidence that you will see in your case and how it's impacted, how it is presented, <clears throat> and how it might be challenged if, uh, if there is a trial. So now let's just start with a little bit of, of common sense. Let's indicate, or let's ask um, for you to think about if you were trying to prove whether or not somebody did something, and it doesn't even have to be a criminal act, okay? You can say who ate the last cookies out of the cookie jar, okay? It, it, it doesn't really matter, but any given act, how would you as a person prove that that act occurred? Um, so, I submit to you to consider that the best evidence of that would be the subject's own words, right? So, in, this, in, in the context of criminal courts, it would be the defendant's own words. In other words, a confession. So, if you have a case or you have a loved one who has a case and they made a confession, um, those, those words that he or she did action A, B, or C are extremely powerful. Okay, Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it's game over because um, just because a defendant has made statements you know, statements are open to interpretation. So let's take um, a, a situation where you have a DUI, let's say, and you have a defendant who admitted to the police that he had some drinks, okay? Um, and let's say they were the only person in the car. They, when they stopped the car, the defendant was the person driving. So it's not an issue as to who was driving the car. But we do have an admission that you had, quote unquote, some drinks. All right. So now, how powerful is that evidence? Well, it, it's got some weight behind it because now the jury knows from the defendant himself or herself, there is an admission that there was alcohol in the system. Okay. Now, how strong of evidence is that? Well, that depends on exactly what is said, what is meant, or what the jury interprets it as. 
So let's just say the statement is nothing more than, yes, officer, I had a few drinks. And then it doesn't get any more detailed than that. Well, what is a few drinks? Is it a few Miller Lights? Is it a few shots of tequila? Is, when did those drinks take place? Was it six hours ago? Or was it 60 minutes ago? Right? Did you have something to eat in between? Um, so w when the person made the statement, were they slurring their speech? Were they stumbling all over themselves? So remember, the, the strongest bit of evidence, in, in my opinion, does come from the defendants, but it's not the end of the story because we still have to place those statements into context and fully understand the words that are, are uttered, so to speak, okay? So number one, how would a, the, the government prove their case against you? Well, number one, the words of the defendant or your words if, if you're uh, listening to this podcast having been charged with a crime yourself. So the defendant's own words. Now, how is that defended? Well, it's defended by placing it into context. It's also defended by showing that the words that the defendant made are limited and um, that there are other things that may not have been explained. Okay? That's number one. It can also be defended on the basis of it being involuntary. So um, you've probably heard of Miranda warnings. When you are in custody, so you've been seized and you are under arrest, and if law enforcement wants to question you, then they have to give you a Miranda warning. That does not attach to any spontaneous statements that, that you might make, but if they want to put you in a room down at the station, sit in there and ask you a bunch of questions, they have to give you a Miranda warning, okay? You have the right to remain silent. Any words that you uh, say uh, can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney. If you cannot afford one, one will be provided to you at no expense, right? Those types of uh, words have to be spoken to you if they want to question you and ask questions that they know would lead to answers that might incriminate you when you're in custody. So make sure that you fully understand that, that this questioning of the defendant occurs in custody. You must be seized. All right. So number one, most powerful evidence are the defendant's own words. And that is why you will hear criminal defense attorneys always say that you should not make a statement. And I'll repeat that here. Um, if you're listening to this podcast having already been charged, it may or may not be relevant to you, but perhaps it will be in the future. If uh, you're listening to this podcast and you have a loved one, um, it may or may not help them in the future. Or if you are just trying to learn more about uh, criminal law, do not make a statement. And I've covered this in other episodes. That doesn't mean that we're telling you not to assist law enforcement in solving crime. Okay, you, It's just not recommended that you assist law enforcement in convicting you. Uh, retain counsel. And if 
there is important information that law enforcement needs to know to solve the crimes of other people, your lawyers can, can uh, help facilitate that information getting to the proper authorities. Okay, so number one, your own words. Um, but, you know, it's defended when we put it into context. All right, now, number two, somebody else's words. Now, here's what I mean by this. Because somebody else's words can be hearsay. So person A cannot take the witness stand and generally say what person B said. Now, there are a variety of different exceptions. And in this episode, we are not going to get into hearsay exceptions. But generally, person A cannot take the stand and say what person B said. So when I say the words of another person, I'm going to, for this purposes, limit it to their own observations. So in uh, group number two, evidence used to uh, prove up a case to convict a defendant, it's going to be the observations of another person. And that could be any, any person. It could be a civilian. It could be law enforcement. Okay, it could be law enforcement who reported to the scene. They saw you in, uh, you know, the red shirt um, holding a gun. Okay, it could also be a civilian. It could be a civilian who says, "Hey, I was working at the Quickie Mart, and a person walked in who matches the description of the defendant, and they asked me to um, open up the cash register and give them all the money." Okay. So it can be the statements of others, the words of others. Now, how do we challenge that? Well, people get things wrong all the time, right? The statements of others are based upon their observations. So how solid are their observations? What kind of an opportunity did they get to observe the situation? Are they certain that they heard uh, a gunshot? Uh, could it have been a firecracker? You know, could have been a number of things. Was it one shot, two shots, three shots, four shots? Where you try to test them on how solid their observations were. So, again, in this number two part of how a state can prove their case, they another person's statement, another person's observations. You know, this is, it is subject to interpretation and they're human beings. Human beings get things wrong. Human beings get distracted and they have a variety of different, different things. But, but I would say that those are the two strongest areas of testimony, evidence that a government uses, that prosecutors use to convict defendants defendant's own words and the words of a witness, okay? So um, now the witness may be interested. So it, when I say they're interested, they may be biased. They may have some dog in the hunt, you know? Um, so let's say this is a domestic battery case and the witness, the only witness is the spouse. And the spouse has filed for divorce because the defendant was caught cheating. Okay, At issue is whether or not the defendant slapped 
uh, the now former spouse and committed domestic battery. Let's say there are no, there's no other evidence. In other words, there's no pictures or any medical evidence or anything that suggests injuries. We just have the words of two parties to, you know, he said, she said. So you have the defendant's words and you have the witness's words. So when we talk about bias, not only could you challenge how good of an observation a particular witness had, you can also challenge their motivations for making certain statements. Okay, So sometimes, as you know, through your own common sense, not everybody's honest, not everybody is straightforward, and some people are willing to lie to get other people in trouble. That happens all the time. And that should not surprise you that that happens in the criminal courts. It's very unfortunate. But that bias needs to be presented um, to the trier of fact, to the jury. And they can evaluate that in deciding whose testimony they actually want to believe. All right. So number one is the testimony of the defendant. Number two is testimony, statements, observations of, of another witness. So let's go to number three. What do you think is evidence number three or the most typical third most typical piece of evidence i'm going to tell you people are visual right so it's pictures and video it's visual it's it's something that a jury can see um in the dui case it might be the dash cam video that shows the defendant stumbling and slurring speech and not able to walk a straight line, right? That's very good evidence. Um, in a armed robbery case, it might be the surveillance camera from the store where the defendant um, is alleged to have committed the crime. Um, you know, in a murder case, it might be a picture, a picture of the murder weapon found in a park underneath some leaves or in a garbage can. Something like that. Um, so something visual might be a, um, a picture, might be audio. Now, how do you challenge that? Well, the first thing is, is that not all pictures and not all videos immediately come into evidence. They have to be authenticated. In other words, someone's got to testify that it is a fair and accurate representation of what it is purported to be. In other words, if someone's saying, well, that's the murder weapon, um, then somebody needs to indicate that, hey, that's what that gun looked like when we found it. And that's usually, say, a police officer, or it might be the person who actually owns the gun. Um, it, it, it might be something like that. So someone's got to authenticate that. If you can't, if the government cannot authenticate it, then perhaps they cannot admit it. And if they can't admit it, that's how you would challenge that. And that piece of evidence would not um, would not come into evidence. Other things is to put things in context. Maybe it's an old picture. Maybe the video is 10 seconds of of an occurrence. But the occurrence actually was five minutes long. Let's say it was a fight. Right. Let's say we have a video of a fight. And all we have is a 10 second clip. And in that 10 second clip, it looks like the defendant in the case is the aggressor, right? Well, you might challenge that by other 
uh, witnesses, other people who were there, who says, now wait a minute, wait a minute. The person who's claiming to be the victim was the aggressor. And it's unfortunate that the video clip uh, that the government is offering it makes it appear as if the defendant was the aggressor, but it's only 10 minutes long or 10 seconds long. Had you been there for the whole five minute incident or 10 minute incident, you would have seen that the that the victim was actually the aggressor. So it's essentially putting that picture into some type of context. Okay. Um, all right. So what do you think number four is? Well, think about how people communicate these days. They communicate by text messages, right? They communicate by email, they communicate by Snapchat, um, all the social media, Facebook Messenger, all that kind of stuff. So again, these are the words of either the defendant or other witnesses, people involved in the case, but it's, it's text, it's put down on paper, it's something we can visualize. Again, how do we challenge it? Well, one, it's got to be authenticated. Um, some witness has to show it is what, what the government's claiming it to be. And then two, you can uh, place it into context, like you would put anything else into context. Yes, this is a text message. Yes, I said, I'm going to strangle you. But you're not considering the 50 other text messages that went back and forth, which would clearly show I was just kidding, right? Um, the, the, the defendant didn't at all um, mean that he was going to strangle the victim. Um, and this one text message is taken completely out of context. So you you would challenge it in, in, in that sense. If it came in, perhaps it doesn't tell the whole story. Text messages, emails, all those things are notorious for shorthand. Um, you, especially if a piece of evidence involves an emoji. What did that emoji mean? Was it intentionally sent? What's the meaning behind it? There's a lot of shorthand in text. Um, how often in your own experience have one of your text messages been misunderstood? Uh, I assume it has happened a lot. All right, so we've got the words of the defendant, number one, words of other people, uh, observations of other people, number two. We got pictures and videos as number three, and we've got text uh, as number four. Um, let's say number five, then, are documents. And I think that this comes into play in lots of different types of cases. It could come into play in, say, a DUI, where the document shows that the defendant's breath alcohol level was over the legal limit. It might be in a uh, domestic battery case, where it might be a medical record. It might be in a gun case. It could be a DNA report showing um, that the defendant's DNA was on the gun. Maybe it's a fingerprint analysis, stuff like that. So documents, documents, it could be business records, um, could be some type of incident report. Heck, it might even be a police report. Now, um, sometimes important documents, important pieces of evidence in the case don't actually go in front of the jury, but there might be a police report where the police officer says, uh, one thing, okay, in the report. But when they go and testify, they remember it as something entirely different, uh, or they claim they can't remember it at all. 
And so then this report becomes a very important piece of evidence in the case because now you have to present that report to that officer to have them have their memory refreshed or to impeach them in, in some fashion. So I think that those uh, um, are a, a good way to give you an idea as to the types of evidence that that is uh, presented. Now, um, how it is used? Well, that's probably a topic that's far beyond the scope of this podcast. I think one of the things you, you have to um, consider is when, when we've talked in other episodes about what your lawyer is doing, okay? He is analyzing, he's giving advice, he's being an advocate. Well, in doing that, your lawyer is looking at these variety of different areas of evidence and making an analysis. And they're deciding and giving you advice on how this might play if you go to trial. Uh, so I, I strongly suggest that you take that to heart, you consider what that advice might be, and consider it once the uh, lawyer has given their suggestions or what he or she thinks you should do in the case because they've seen this type of evidence. They, they know how this might play in front of a jury. Um, the other important thing to keep in mind is cases can be proved on circumstantial evidence. A lot of times I will have a client um, and you might be wondering this yourself as a defendant or the loved one of a defendant you might wonder something like this. How could the government prove this case when no one actually saw me do it? Uh, we see this in drug cases. Well, the drugs were in the car, but they weren't in my pockets. Uh, we see it in gun cases. Yeah, the gun was under the seat, but it wasn't in my hand. Yes, um, not all cases are proved by direct evidence. Direct evidence might be something like the police officer testifies, yeah, that's the defendant, and I saw that weapon in his hand. That's direct evidence. Whereas uh, circumstantial evidence might be, I stopped the car, this being the police officer, I stopped the car, uh, points to the defendant, that's the guy who was in the car, he got out of the car because of a smell of cannabis, I searched the car, underneath the driver's seat was uh, a firearm, uh, a separate witness might testify that they did uh, swabs of the firearm and the defendant's DNA was on the firearm, okay? Circumstantial. It's not direct. It's not direct evidence that that gun was ever in the hand of the defendant, but it's, they're, they're clues. They're pieces of a puzzle. So keep in mind, not all cases are proved by direct evidence, also circumstantial evidence. So I hope uh, this podcast has been very helpful for you to understand uh, evidence, the types of evidence and how they are used in cases. But it's also very, very crucial and important that you take to heart your lawyer's advice. If you or a loved one has a criminal case and you need help, uh, the law firm is Shire and Ritchie in East Peoria. We handle those types of cases in state and federal court. We can be reached at 309-839-2024 or on the World Wide Web at uh, www.srtriallawyers.com. Uh, stay safe out there.